Today's Bible reading is 2 Peter chapter 2, verses 10 to 22. You can follow along on the screen or in your own Bible. And I'm starting halfway through verse 10. Bold and arrogant. They are not afraid to heap abuse on celestial beings. Yet even angels, although they are stronger and more powerful, do not heap abuse on such beings when bringing judgment on them from the Lord. But these people blaspheme in matters they do not understand. They are like unreasoning animals, creatures of instinct, born only to be caught and destroyed. And like animals, they too will perish They will be paid back with harm for the harm they have done. Their idea of pleasure is to carouse in broad daylight. They are blots and blemishes, reveling in their pleasures while they feast with you. With eyes full of adultery, they never stop sinning. They seduce the unstable. They are experts in greed and a cursed brood. They have left the straight way and wandered off to follow the way of Balaam, son of Bezer. Who loved the wages of wickedness. But he was rebuked for his wrongdoing by a donkey, an animal without speech, who spoke with a human voice and restrained the prophet's madness. These people are springs without water and mists driven by a storm. Blackest darkness is reserved for them, for they mouth empty, boastful words, and by appealing to the lustful desires of the flesh, they entice people who are just escaping from those who live in error. They promise them freedom, while they themselves are slaves of depravity. For people are slaves to whatever has mastered them. If they have escaped the corruption of the world by knowing our Lord and Saviour Jesus Christ and are again entangled in it and are overcome, they are worse off at the end than they were at the beginning It would have been better for them not to have known the way of righteousness than to have known it and then to turn their backs on the sacred command that was passed on to them. Of them, the proverbs are true. A dog returns to its vomit and a sow that is washed returns to her wallowing in the mud. begin with a word of prayer. Heavenly Father, as we come to your word again today and uh, consider another uh, portion of your scripture, Lord, I pray, Holy Spirit, that you would speak to us and speak to us through your word. Father, it is a, a weighty passage that you have before us here today. I pray, Father, for humble hearts. Help us to humble ourselves before you as we consider the weight of what's being said in these verses. And that you may show us afresh the glory of Jesus and his gospel. Praise in your name. Amen. So as we consider these verses before us, uh, it's probably just worth mentioning that uh, the start of chapter 2, really this whole, whole chapter works together as one big chapter. And we've only just read the second half of it. So if you weren't here last week... 
the Bible reading might not have made sense in the sense that you've got to start from chapter, um, ch- verse 1 in chapter 2, where uh, Peter introduces his theme, where he's talking about false teachers and false prophets, uh, and that's his main theme. Now, if you are here today to, hearing these verses for the first time, I wonder if, for you, they might come across as kind of bitter vitriol, perhaps from an old man. Perhaps a bit like I thought of Martin Luther and some of the things that he wrote in the latter years in his own life, particularly as he faced some health struggles towards the end of his life. Now, Martin Luther, if you know of him yourself, he's often credited as one of the founding figures, if not the founding figure, of the Protestant Reformation back in the 16th century, an event that gave birth to many gospel-focused church denominations, including our own Reformed denomination. I mean, Martin Luther was, without a doubt, powerfully used by God for so much good. And yet, as true as that was of Luther, he remained a deeply flawed man. One deep flaw was his anti-Semitism that developed and came to light in his later years, where he penned some awful things against Jewish people. He, after having advocated for oppressive measures against Jews, including the desire to set fire to their synagogues and schools, historian Lyndall Roper adds uh, these comments about Luther. Now, I wrestled whether or not I should even write these words because they're a bit confronting, but here we go. Uh, Luther's anti-Semitism then reached a crescendo of physical revulsion. He imagined Jews kissing and praying to the devil's excrement. The devil has emptied his stomach, Luther says, again and again. That is a true relic which the Jews and those who want to be a Jew kiss, eat, drink and worship. I mean, it's just pretty revolting, isn't it? And that's just a small glimpse of some of the things that he said. And if you've got my manuscript, you can read an article on the Gospel Coalition that details it in more uh, detail. Now, Peter, in our passage, is also likely an older man and not far away from his own death and martyrdom, as we, might have, as we read in, back in chapter 1. I mean, does he sound similar to Luther here in chapter 2 and some of the strong language that he's using? I mean, is Peter just some bitter old man who is nearing the end of his life, who's angry with the world and how his life has turned out, and simply is just finding someone to take out his anger out on? Well, if you're reading these verses for the first time, it might feel that way to modern-day readers. And yet... If I can put it to you, that's not what's going on here. Yes, Peter is clearly passionate. Yes, Peter is using very strong language, even offensive language. I mean, who wants to be called a dog or a pig, right? As difficult as it might be for some to believe, Peter truly had a pure intention behind writing these words. For Peter knew what was at stake if he didn't speak words like these, namely the gospel itself. What was this key danger that Peter is speaking against? Well, as I just mentioned earlier, and what Dan mentioned last week, he's speaking against false teachers and their teaching. Last week we saw the ongoing danger false teaching is for the church. 
along with God's justice, justice against and judgment against all falsehood. Today, we, as a church, uh, we get to explore further uh, in the second half of chapter 2 more about the false teachers themselves. We're going to explore from Peter's verses here what characterizes them. What, if, what is the effect of their false teaching? What does it lead to? And then ultimately, what is the remedy for them? So first, let's consider what Peter says here in terms of what characterizes these teachers. How are they identified? Well, firstly, we see Peter shows that they are marked by blatant immorality. In verse 2, they are marked by their sensuality, their sexual sin. Sin, according to verse 13, that they don't shy away from others. It's in plain sight. Verse 14 says, With eyes full of adultery, they never stop sinning. They simply love sin. But it's not only sexual misconduct that Peter highlights here. They're marked by self-centered greed. Verse 3 says, in their greed, they will exploit fellow believers with false words. In the latter part of verse 14, it says that they're experts in greed. Or as the ESV puts it, they have hearts trained in greed. The idea being that greed is so ingrained in them that they can't help but act in, uh, for personal gain in that way. It's in their very nature, their way of life, to act selfishly and take advantage of others. Secondly, Peter says here that they are marked by a rejection of the gospel, their apostasy. Verse 15 says they have left the straight way and wandered off to follow the way of Balaam. Balaam, if you know your Old Testaments, was a false prophet in Old Testament times. Verse 20 to verse 21 makes it clear that Having come to understand intellectually the truth of the gospel, they have rejected it and are now worse off for it. Now, if you read verses 20 and 21, I can understand why some believe that Peter here is teaching that some people can lose their salvation. I think, though, that he's simply making external observations based on their life and practice. (coughs) Excuse me. These are people who have heard and intellectually come to understand what saving faith in Jesus is all about. But evidently, in time, it becomes apparent that they were never genuine Christians, having fallen away from the truth of the gospel. Perhaps a helpful reference to consider is Jesus' parable of the sower, where the seed of the gospel falls on different heart soils. Some fall on paths which birds come and eat. Others fall on rocky soil that flourish for some time but have no uh, depth and die off. Yet others, the seed falls on ground that are choked out by weeds, thorns and thistles. With only some gospel seed landing on good heart soil that comes to bear genuine and lasting fruit of salvation and saving faith. Thirdly, With their words, we see Peter say that they are also those who teach others to do the same. Verse 2 says, many will follow their depraved conduct. Verse 14 says, they seduce the unstable or entice unsteady souls. 
Again in verse 18, they enticed by sensual passions of the flesh, those who are barely escaping from those who live in error. In other words, what Peter's saying here is that they are at risk, especially to new Christians in the faith, who are less established in the truth. All in all, this amounts to a person who is characterized by that age-old problem of human pride, being those who despise authority, bold and arrogant, as verse 10 says, who blaspheme or heap abuse on celestial beings. I mean, what does that mean? What is he saying there? Well, the context suggests that such people mock even Satan and demons as simply silly made-up mythical creatures, or at the very least, as beings that don't really hold any power over us as sinners. It's worth noting, then, who Peter is not referring to in his passage. He's not referring to the genuine Christian who momentarily or for a period of time finds themselves really struggling with sin. It's not speaking of the downtrodden sinner who knows and acknowledges their wrong before God and man, but for a time is just really struggling to find freedom. Nor is Peter even really seeming to mention unbelievers more generally. Those who truly are still spiritually dead in their sins, but who are perhaps still seeking the truth. And who God is gradually softening their hearts to the gospel. And who are not overtly and blatantly going out of their way to entice others. Rather, Peter has in mind those who have heard the truth and have superficially persisted for a time, but remain hard-hearted. And indeed are going deeper into that hard-heartedness and running in the completely opposite direction. And not only that, intentionally dragging others along with them. So he has a very specific person in mind here when he's penning these verses. As we consider our culture and our church life today, the ongoing threat of false teachers is, is very real. Uh, as we consider the wider body church family uh, in Australia, uh, perhaps one example is what's happening, at least from my understanding, in the Anglican churches, where some leaders in that church are intentionally putting roadblocks in the way of the gospel of evangelical, faithful, and biblical-minded churches, particularly in the areas of, of uh, sexuality. But it's not just out there. All churches, including our own, need to be vigilant and considering whether or not we as a church are holding firm to the truth of the gospel. All of us need to consider what false beliefs our culture uh, has and what are actually in our own hearts that we are fighting even ourselves. For example, our culture tells us that love is love. Flaunting virtually any sexual expression as love without defining love within the boundary of God's good law and biblical ethics. Furthermore, we live in an age of subjectivism, where even the word truth is offensive to many people. I mean, truth? What kind of truth? They might balk at that. More like, whose truth are you talking about? Rather than defining truth by any 
faith-based beliefs or sacred scriptures like the Bible. Our culture says, you be the master of your identity. And that's actually what's good for you. You be king of your life. You rule your life. That's the message or one of the messages that we receive. But living in accordance with such subjectivity makes your own feelings the basis of your own decision making. That might seem like the right thing to do to many. If it feels right, it must be right, yeah? Or at least can be explained away without it being considered bad, some of the feelings that you might have. I mean, why not indulge in just basically any form of pleasure as long as it doesn't harm somebody else? Such thinking, and many more, are a daily battle, not just against false teachers who overtly believe and teach these things, but actually something that all of us need to check our hearts with this morning as Christians, as we need the ongoing weeding of the work of the gospel in our own souls and considering God's truth each day of our life. So that's some of the things that Peter says around what might characterize uh, people in this situation and the danger that they face, uh, that they are to the truth of the gospel. But why are they such a danger? Well, that's why I want to move on to next to consider the effects that these false teachers have. And what Peter teaches us is that following these false teachers lead to a freedom that actually enslaves and imprisons us. In verse 19, Peter kind of just gets to the heart of the issue. He says, They, being the false teachers, promise them freedom while they themselves are slaves of depravity. For people who are slaves to whatever has mastered them. The irony of their spirit, true spiritual condition wasn't actually lost on Peter. Having dangled the promise of true life, true fulfillment, the greatest of pleasure, satisfaction and joy, founded pursuing sin in the front of others, these teachers are found wanting. Such is the deceitfulness and pleasure of sin. It promises so much and yet it delivers slavery. I wonder if you've ever purchased something that you've come to regret. Maybe AFL tickets to see your team get absolutely hammered. Or buying a brand new mobile phone or a tablet that you soon drop and smash and crack the screen off. There's a word for this. It's called buyer's remorse. And actually, that's what sin is like. It produces that feeling of buyer's remorse. In the end, it leaves us dissatisfied, frustrated, and actually worse off than before. Such is, I fear, what will be the case for so many who are caught up in our culture's radical views on sexuality and gender. Views that disregard the Bible's healthy and God-given boundaries for sexuality and gender. Uh, a key example of this that's come to light recently is the Tavistock Gender Clinic in the UK. That's a case in point where it appears that something like a thousand families may end up potentially suing the clinic. All for rushing children through radical life-altering medical treatments, puberty blockers and procedures that are causing devastating harm and irreversible changes. Only, and by only offering unquestionable and an affirmative approach towards gender confusion. 
the list of those facing buyer's regret years later to those treatment is only growing. But that is just one tragic example of the deeper spiritual issue highlighted here by Peter that actually face all of humanity, all of us. In how sin, in whatever form it takes, leads to buyer's regret. Ultimately, it brings us back to that age-old deception of Satan in the Garden of Eden, where Adam and Eve ate that forbidden fruit and gave in to Satan's lies. I think it's actually quite interesting that in our culture today, we seem to have a somewhat similar approach towards angelic beings as Peter's opponents in his day. I mean, we have plenty of TV shows and movies and, and series that are intrigued about spirituality. They almost celebrate the idea of the demotic at times. I mean, one example is the Netflix series Lucifer, where actor Tom Ellis stars as the devil. In our own way, then, our culture mocks the devil and demons as some comical and humorous beings. Our materialistic Western worldview doesn't help in this at all, where it tends to disbelieve in any spirituality at all. We're just kind of physical. All there is is the physical universe. In that way, way our Western view often disbelieves even the existence of God himself. When it comes to demonic beings, either Satan and demons don't exist, or if they do, they don't really hold any sway over humanity or our will to just choose as we please. But that's coming with, without the understanding that God's word gives us, that without God's saving work in us, we have collectively already chosen sin and are by very nature, by our nature, bent towards sinful desires. As such, Paul says in Ephesians 2 that without Christ, humanity are sons of disobedience. That's the words he uses. Under the power and sway of Satan and the deceptions of sin. I wonder if you yourself recognize the danger of, of sin in your own life and what this false freedom promises. If you're here today and new to Christianity... How conscious are you of the reality of this, uh, the way of sin and the spiritual state of being in sin? God calls you and indeed all of us to see the treachery of sin for what it is. How it's rebellion against God. And that, having, and that by uh, its nature, it naturally enjoys displeasing God. It's having a nature that enjoys the pleasure of this life as if they are ends in themselves, the ultimate source of joy and fulfillment. But like what these false teachers offered those in Peter's day, what false teachers and false beliefs offer, as Peter says, are empty mists of water. It's like on a hot day, if you're driving along uh, and you see in the distance on the road, you see... Uh, that mirage where it looks like there's water in the distance. Imagine being hot and thirsty and you see in the tarmac that promise of, of, of fresh water in the distance. And think, if only I can get there, I can get a refreshing drink. But what happens? You can just keep driving and driving and driving and never actually get to that water. Well, that gives us a picture of what 
sin is like. We, we, you can chase it. It promises so much. It, it repros, uh, promises a refreshing spiritual drink for us. But it lets us down. It can never fully satisfy. In a spiritual way then, Peter wants us to, be, to prevent us from the same spiritual thirst. He wants to turn us away from that. So having explored then the characteristics as well as the effects of these false teachers and and what their beliefs are teaching, what is the remedy that he gives us here? Well, Peter shows us that paradoxically we need to preach and teach a different type of slavery in order to experience true and a better freedom. In chapter 2, verse 1, these false teachers, they're described there as denying God as their true master in their pursuit of sin and rejection of the gospel. As we saw in verse 19, they have become slaves to which had mastered them, namely sin. But the hope of the gospel provides humanity with a much greater promise of life, fulfillment and joy. That is, the hope of eternal life and quenching the spiritual thirst of our souls through Jesus Christ, the Son of God. Rather than being an empty promise for us, the gospel is a gift in which buyers can't experience buyer's remorse from. For it is the best gift that gives true freedom. How can I say that? What is this freedom? What is the nature of this freedom according to Christ? Well, it's the spiritual freedom from our sins. A freedom purchased by Jesus Christ himself on the cross, where he paid the penalty of sin to set believers free. By dying for his people and raising again to new life, Jesus rescues us from spiritual darkness and has spiritually transferred us into the kingdom of his son, into his kingdom, and offered us the forgiveness of sins. It's freedom knowing that you don't have to keep relentlessly pursuing things in this life to fill up your soul, but knowing that in Christ, your soul can be filled to the brim with true life. How does the gospel give us this freedom? How is it available to us? Well, as I said, it is available paradoxically through a new type of slavery. Rather than being slaves to sin, Christians are called to submit to Christ as our new master. That's why Peter calls Jesus in verse 20, Lord and Savior. Not just our Savior, but our Lord as well. And as we explored a few weeks ago, Peter even opened up his letter in the very first verse with a declaration of who his master was calling himself a servant or slave of Jesus. To our Western ears, the idea of being someone's slave is not appealing. But that's because unless you've experienced God's grace offered to us through the gospel, one cannot understand how good God has been to us through Jesus and how satisfying it is to know in your hearts and to experience his love for yourself. It's when you yourself has been 
overcome by the grace of God, rather than being overcome by our sin. That's when you can fully appreciate the joy of knowing God in through Christ. Knowing Christ then kicks off sin from the throne of your heart, displacing the central place that it had in your heart of hearts. I wonder if you've experienced that for yourself. Has your own heart been overcome by the grace of God found in Jesus? Has the deceitful pleasure of sin been displaced in you? To experience this for yourself, Scripture calls all to repent and believe in Jesus. With the help of God's Holy Spirit, God calls all to repent of their sins, to recognize it for what it is and the destructive paths that it leads to, in how it leads to death rather than life. And also to believe, to have faith that Jesus really does offer a better way, a better freedom, that Jesus is the better master to have. As we read at the start of the service, he says, come and find spiritual rest in me. Put my yoke upon you and it will be good for you. Jesus isn't one who is filled with greed and selfish ambition, but in the entirely opposite. He is a lowly servant, a servant, a giver, who literally died for you. A holy, giving person who shares the love of God with us. A fountain of love, an ocean of God's goodness for our worn out, dry and barren souls. Today we, we live in a world that in so many, so, so many ways is so sapping, that is constantly take, take, take. But in the gospel, God is give, give, give. Yes, we need to confront false teachers and false teaching. Ultimately, though, we do so by calling them and all to a better thing to our master Jesus and the eternal life and joy found in him alone. Amen. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, I want to thank you uh, for this gift of your word this morning as we've considered, I guess, two types of freedom and two types of slavery. Father, we confess this morning that as Christians, our hearts are so often prone to wandering still, that we need to be reminded of the gospel. We need to be reminded of the treachery that sin is. Father, it's so easy to peer out on the horizon and think that sin is just that uh, wonderful pool of water, refreshing water for us to to go and chase. Father, will you save us from that never-ending road that we drive down so easily? to find things that ultimately don't satisfy but actually cause harm for us and other people. Father, turn our hearts to Jesus. Holy Spirit, work in us and show us that you, following you is the better way. That actually being mastered by you and your grace is what brings the greatest joy. And Father, we can only do that if we can See in faith, reach out in faith and see how precious you are as our Savior really is. How glorious you are, how attractive and beautiful you are.
how, how holy you are, how righteous and good you are. Father, will you graciously reveal yourself to us in this way? Father, I pray for anyone here that doesn't know the gospel, doesn't know the gift of Jesus and his gospel. I pray, Father, that you would work in them, that you would show them your amazing grace. And Father, as we head out here into a world that often doesn't follow you or follows false freedoms, that brings terrible slavery to sin, I pray, Father, that we would be your faithful witnesses, not in pride, thinking that we're better than other people, but actually humbly, knowing that we would be in the same position unless you worked in us and continue to work in us. Father, may we truly be a faithful witness in this way to graciously and lovingly show others a better way through Jesus. We pray this in your name. Amen.